Welcome to the Consortium Podcast, an academic audio blog of Kepler Education. Kepler is a consortium of independent classical Christian teachers unified by a shared vision for student flourishing. I'm Scott Postman, your host, and joined by Joffrey Swader, academic advisor and co-host. How's it going, Joffrey? I'm doing great. I'm ready to do my very best Casey Kasem impression. Ooh. <laughs> now, we were just talking about Casey Kasem and then Dick Clark. That's who came to my mind. American Bandstand, and you had top. 40 right yeah right. countdown <laughs> we're doing top 20 of a very special list today. yes this is scott and joffrey's top 20 lit list except there's a few more than 20. Mm. <laughs> yeah so we couldn't so the initial idea was let's do one for every century anno domini yeah right but we couldn't stay away of course from Plato, Aristotle, etc. Yeah, and you got you know you got to start with Homer. What do you do? Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> so the way this is going to work uh, is this is opinion, y'all. Mm-hmm. This and there are some centuries, you know, especially when we get further on, where we had to pick between six, seven, eight favorites. You know, I'm saying six, seven, or eight, just make us yeah. really, really very literate. Two or three favorites. <laughs> <laughs> no, but really, I mean, really, it came down to you're you're picking like how do I pick between you know you you can't just leave this, but yeah. you do you know. So, so this is very subjective. Uh, it's an opportunity though for the listener to you know maybe be exposed to some new works, yeah. uh, be confirmed that in fact such and such a work should be on our list for yeah. our kids. So would you call this? I don't know. We can really call this a canon, right? Because that's big, that's the big argument, even with the great books. What is the right. canon, right? So, and I think this is part of an, a larger conversation. And maybe we'll do a podcast on this in the future. But we've been talking about languages and the way language and and our language acquisition actually influences our literature choices, right? right? And our I mean, we have to go through fifteen hundred years of this list before we really start getting to stuff written in English. I had somebody ask me the other day, said, why, why all the Latin phrases for certain things, you know, um, you know, that are, you know, medical terms or, or legal terms or even literary terms. Why, why not just use the English? Well, because they came about before English existed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how this thing works. So, well, let's begin and we're going to jump all the way back to BC. Right. Taking right? turns. Right. So I believe yeah. it's your turn first. Yeah. So I'm going to start today and I, you know, we can't get away from Homer. Homer is mm. sort of the, you know, foundation of Western literature. And, but Joffrey twisted my arm and said, you have to pick between the Iliad and the Odyssey. Right. You know, I wanted to just say Homer, but uh, we're going to go with the Iliad in particular because of book six, mm. I think. I mean, that um, or where Priam has to, you know, come to to uh, Achilles. Both of these scenes are very human scenes, mm. right, in the Iliad. Um, amidst all this war. Uh, we stop and we get a glimpse into the humanity of Hector and his family, knowing that he's not going to see his family again. And so it really kind of raises the idea of, is this Greek form of glory really all that glorious? Right. Absolutely. You know, there's a uh, there's this idea of sympathy for the devil that is related to Milton. Mm, Blake. I wonder, um, you know, what if you can connect that idea to how we look at uh, Achilles and, and Hector? Well, if if I'm uh, tracking with you, Blake wrote uh, at some point about the fact that Lucifer becomes Milton's kind of you know right. uh, you know his uh, hero, and uh, the argument in that is that he's not right. So Blake's taking on this this idea of the Greek hero uh, and, and relating Lucifer in some ways to Achilles, where Hector uh, is really more in in some ways like the son of God in terms yes. of dying for. Uh, others not himself and i think when you when you read the work or i assume when you had 
heard it, you know, you heard it to, to yeah. over 2000 years ago. Um, that That's part of the point of the work, yeah. right? For the Greeks to question themselves. Yes. Yep. To bring that in. So that idea of, of kleos and time and geros, you know, th- this, these are all Greek words that talk about, you know, your renown, your glory, uh, the prizes. And literally, if we were to take this into modern English terms, their, their idea of glory was he with the most toys in the end wins, right? right. That's, that's how you, that's how you get your glory. And it's this very zero sum thing, but Hector actually is, you know, the antithesis of that. Here's one who dies for God and country and family and that kind of thing. Right. Uh, well, I, I'm going to go with, with Pythagoras next. We're, later on, we'll go uh, by century, but uh, we're just going to knock a few uh, before Christ uh, authors or works out. And I'm going to go with Pythagoras. Uh, if, you know, it's really interesting to, you know, I mean, I've, I've barely dabbled, and this is years ago in, in, in reading Pythagoras, but the mix of uh, spiritual, philosophical, and mathematical yeah. stuff. Uh, but you know, it's it's really great to be able to put yourself in a in a position where someone is integrating, mm-hmm. right? And so he's thinking about proportion. He's thinking about geometry. He's thinking about spirit. He's thinking about vegetarianism, and that's silly. But you know, like it's just he, he, all, none of it is separate for him, right? And that's right. That's how it, it should is. be. And when you when you read something like that, you should think, well, I as a Christian can do that even better like Johannes Kepler did like Copernicus did. But, you know, these are the seeds that are planted and looking at the cosmos and looking at the human self and, and being able to, to philosophize it, to math it. And that all, that starts, I think with, with Pythagoras. Yeah. Well, Pythagoras in, in, and his followers really reduced everything to number, right? Everything, mm-hmm. everything could be reduced down to number. And that's actually a very philosophical approach to looking at the world and and later on, this actually becomes really really important in the um, scientific revolution and, and enlightenment, when you know it's kind of the revival of the Pythagorean you know worldview. So yeah, it's a good choice. All right, so you're next. Well, um, I can't escape Plato. How do we get, <laughs> how do we get away from the dialogues and particularly the Republic? And and so you know the Republic raises all kinds of questions, but. The main thing with Plato's Republic is that isomorphic view of the city and the soul, right? Mm. So the the city, Plato says, is the soul writ large. And so we can learn something about the human soul by looking at how the city interacts. You know, of course, we have the famous allegory, the cave and all kinds of great stories there. Right. Gyges ring. Yeah. So that comes from Plato's Republic as well. Ah, cool. <laughs> well, Gyges ring is the, uh, the, the philosophy. I got the wink. Uh, yeah. <laughs> go, what? Okay. So this is where Tolkien, I mean, he, you know, picks it up from, from Nibelung, but, but even before that Gyges ring is, is the myth of the, uh, you know, Gyges finds the ring and you put the, the ring on your finger and all of a sudden you disappear. And so the question becomes, what would you do? If you uh-huh. could never be found out. So anyway. yeah, the deep philosophical questions. Yes. I right? mean, really, <laughs> it really reveals the soul, doesn't it? Uh, well, I'm going to go with Aristotle next. I, I think, you know, this was obviously going to be a slam dunk from the beginning that yep. we'd go Plato, Aristotle, yeah. uh, Nicomachean ethics uh, in particular, you know, and just, just that, you know, this is, this is a, a, a place where uh, through conversation and application it, you know, philosophy really, Hits meets the road, yeah, right, and I think it's a great place for younger students. And I first encountered this when I was in high school. Um, you, you you've got to face some questions that perhaps you know in your family or even in Bible study you didn't necessarily face a lot of these questions, and you know there, there's a universality to them that's wonderful. 
Yeah, I we could go on about Aristotle, but I I love your choice of the ethics. There, that's foundational to any work in ethics today. It has to be referential back back to Aristotle's work. So right. the golden mean and all of that. Well, uh, moving on, I'm going with the Aeneid. That's the next. Of course. So how do we miss uh, Virgil? <laughs> <laughs> well, what is the Aeneid? Well, the, the Aeneid is a myth of uh, Rome, right? So this is the the mythos that, that tells the story of, of how Rome uh, came about. Virgil writes it really to find favor with Augustus and kind of gives an identity. And, you know, you're writing in hindsight, so to speak. So he's writing at a time when Rome, you know, uh, is reestablished after Augustus uh, Octavius really gets brings the civil wars to an end and, and establishes his rule. But now we go back and say, well, how did we get here? Right. And he tells the story of leaving Troy, right? Aeneas leaves Troy and goes on his journeys and, you know, through Carthage and then eventually lands on Lycia and establishes the Roman people. Right. Well, you know, to me, the, one of the most fascinating things about that work is just the light that it sheds on myth itself. Yeah. Right. And the nature of myth, because we often think of myth as coming from the, the depths of history. Myths can are created. Yeah, they're a kind of propaganda, right? Right, absolutely. All right. Well, I have uh, the Gallic Wars uh, to 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 end the 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 before Christ. How many parts does Gaul have? Oh man! Well, if, if, according to Asterix, two. Oh no! I'm so sorry. <laughs> Is I it just, four? I no. I just threw that out there because <laughs> the opening lines of the Gallic War that all Gaul is divided into three parts. Ah, uh, yes, yeah. Sorry. Thanks. <laughs> sorry about that. <laughs> I still like the book, okay? It's great. It's fabulous. <laughs> you know, my favorite line from there is uh, where uh, Caesar talks about the different, and I won't remember all of their the Germanic names, yeah. but the one that is most removed from war have become the most effeminate because they've become, <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, civilized. Yeah, that's awesome. So, well, you know, it's it's fun to, to to mix and integrate these things. Like my, uh, my son and I were looking at a Latin book together <clears> that had uh, had a picture of a gall on it, a Gaul who was kind of lying on his side, sort, sort of naked, but kind of, kind of covered. Um, and I asked him if he knew, if he recognized the picture it's from, it's, it's a famous Greek sculpture okay. called the dying Gaul, ah. but it wasn't labeled in the Latin book. It was just, you know, the, the artist who had illustrated the book had just drawn that. Um, and that's all the way in Greece, right? Wow. So you have Gauls yeah. from Portugal to Greece up to, you know, France and into Germany. And, you know, these are all Gallic, Gallic peoples, but you know, it, it's fun to be able, you know, it, one of the great things about classical education is having this exposure from, from all around. And then you, you end up connecting them and yeah. thinking about how, you know, Galatia was a place where Gauls were yes. or it had been at some point. You <laughs> it, know? Yeah. Some point that, that has the influence. Um, all right. So, so now, now is when we officially move into our top 20, we're going to go one per century starting in the year zero. All right. So I am going to start with the revelation of Jesus Christ, you know, John's okay. revelation, um, for obvious reasons, but what a magnificent piece of, you know, what we would call apocalyptic literature, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of, uh, you know, strange uh, and, and also good doctrine have come out of, you know, the reading of the Revelation. And, and so Christianity in the last, what, 200 years has kind of adopted a, a funny version of um, uh, what we would call kind of a dispensational view of, of the Revelation. But really, this is apocalyptic literature that's really rooted in, you know, uh, literature of the time and, and beforehand that gives, you know, the people a vision of hope. Um, and 
several different interpretations, you know, have been presented about the revelation, uh, but really it's the, you know, optimistic hope of the church. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things I like about revelation, which you've kind of hinted at already, but so W.H. Auden, who is a 20th century poet, he, uh, he gave a poem at a, at a Harvard commencement. Uh, and in that poem, he has a, an, a very cutting line, which I don't remember verbatim now. I'm not going to quote it, but a very cutting line about people who read the Bible as literature. Mm. Um, and, you know, it really connected with me at the time I read it because, you know, you're surrounded in, in a secular university by, by people who dismiss the Bible by saying they read it as literature. Uh, right. Yeah. Uh, that being said, reading the revelation, the apocalypse, uh, it, as, as literature, it's, it's a fascinating it is. thing to do, you know, to, to see the, its structure, mm-hmm. right. And to see how well thought out it is. And I, you know, it can really change how we read the book because, you know, I think we often have a tendency to read it as a series of flashes that St. Right. John gets, yeah. you know, but the thing, the thing is highly structured and makes so much sense when you read it as a piece of literature, understanding that it's the word of God, right. Uh, you know, that's, it's, it's, yeah. Well, that's the beauty of the word of God, that, that it, uh, that God reveals himself, you know, in, in this word through various, you know, manifestations of literature. There's not just one kind of literature, you know, from prose to poetry and, and this apocalyptic literature is a great example of that. Well, in so college, I had to read, I, re- I had to read. Wow. What a way to say that. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Irenaeus <laughs> is against heresies, uh, but I, I remember delighting in it, uh, you know, like Chesterton had, you know, besides orthodoxy, mm-hmm. he also wrote a book called Heresies, Heresies yep. right? And, uh, you know, and, and reading that, that stuff, you really see what a joyful curmudgeon he could be. Yeah. Uh, and it's, this is like a classical version of that, right? Yes. And one of the, one of the great effects of, of not just this book, but, you know, books like it is seeing how the questions have been answered. Mm-hmm. Right. The, the, the ignorant ask questions that people resolved 2000 years ago. Right. 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 And it's not like the resolutions always have to be final, but to have that connection of, oh, yeah, you know what? People have been you know, saying that little piece of nonsense for a long time. <laughs> and here are some great arguments, you know, against that. And here's another one. Uh, but just having that, it, it's sort of weird, but the study of heresies can really connect you across the Christian centuries. Well, it can. And, and to, to think that, as you were already mentioning, but to think that some of these new arguments against Christ and against, you know, the church um, are just recycled all the way back, you know, from the first century and right. or second century when Irenaeus is um, obviously arguing with them. Well, we come to the third century now. I'm picking uh, Eusebius's church history mm. uh, for obvious reasons. Again, um, some people have uh, discounted it uh, simply because it was a paid for work, uh, right. you know, that um, um, Constantinople or, or, or Constantine had, had given in, in moving Constantinople and, and really given this Christian vision of the church and, and the Roman Empire merging together. Um, or some have, you know, speculated that way, but but I really think that Eusebius gives us a picture leading up to the time um, that would have been validated or actually invalidated by those, you know, who are living who would have said if if it was wrong that no, wait a minute, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and this is the first ancient history that makes it onto our list, but we could have brought in other historians, and, and you know, we, we've talked in other media places, both on this podcast and in videos that, that Kepler has done um, with some of our history teachers and just about the, the art and science of doing history. Yeah. And 
if, if any of us are reading historians, like they are definitive, you know, we're making a mistake. Yeah. Reading history has to still be an exe- exegetical process. It, it is indeed. But one of the great things about it, I think, though, is the fact that he it's the very first time we actually have a, a, hist- a historian writing from the perspective of the church. Right. right? And th- I think that's really valuable. So you're next. I, uh, I have Athanasius's De Incarnatione. Oh, that's not a very important book, is it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so th- this is the great Athanasius. This is the contramundum guy. Uh, yes. uh, and so, yeah, this is it's it's a book on on the incarnation, just a a, a theological treatise mm-hmm. uh, that you know <laughs> you know when we went through this list, uh, often I had to cast my mind back, and we were exposed to a lot of just oh, I have this big gap here or there, uh, and this is you know this time period is one of those for me but i I remember this was my this athanasius book was my first exposure to patristic theology anything like pre-augustine yeah uh that 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 i i dealt with and really just the 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 orderedness of it yeah for what for whatever foolish reason surprised me right the rigor of it. I think we often associate academic rigor with, uh, with the modern academy and that's a foolish thing to do. So that this book broke that for me. Yeah. I, you're, you're, you've nailed it with the idea of the, the rigor that's there. And and we know that Athanasius was very rigorous in his thinking and in applying philosophical syllogisms, you know, to the truth. Yes. And so a lot of great things are associated with it, not to mention C.S. Lewis's great introduction uh, to the incarnation. Oh, yeah, yeah. On the reading of old books basically comes, that's, that's where that comes huh. from. Yeah. Cool. Uh, but uh, the old phrase, not one iota. Uh-huh. Right? Because it's homoousius or homoousius. Right. Those are the two words, you know, of the same substance or similar substance. This is what Athanasius is arguing. And he was quite a f- little fireball. Yeah, uh, nice. And he was African. So, yeah. little African fireball. I mean, <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, the African thing is a whole other <laughs> yeah. whole other thing we could get into. But actually, I always thought that not one iota. And I see immediately that that, that is the connection. But I always associated it with uh, not one jot or tittle mm, being removed yeah. from the law, from, yeah. from Jesus' saying. Uh, but, of course, I see now, yeah, oh, yeah homoousis, homoousis, or whatever yeah. it is you <laughs> pronounce this to. Uh, that's a great choice. Great, great choice. Well, I can't escape. I, I might, my cho- <laughs> obvious choices for this next century was, uh, you know, the uh, Christina uh, Doctrina, uh, City of God, or um, the Confessions. Mm. But I'm going to go with City of God just because it's so rich. Yeah. You know? And we're not making any assumptions about our audience. So we're no. saying that's St. Augustine yeah. or St. Augustine. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sorry. St. Augustine, St. <laughs> Augustine. But phenomenal, the City of God, City of Man. And, you know, one of the great things I think about that book. What helped me um, the first time I ever read it so opened my eyes uh, to this one truth. When we read the news or we hear the news and all the things that are going on in the world, a couple of questions that we ask, is this the city of man against the city of God or mm. is this the city of man against the city of man? You know, because a lot of times what we see in, in the world that's got everybody perplexed really as Christians, you know, Christ has already given us the victory and, and St. Augustine did a great job of, of sharing that in the city of God. Right. Well, my choice, and this, uh, this pushes us up to the sixth century. So for the sixth century, the consolation of philosophy, maybe the best title of all oh, time. <laughs> I love it. So Boethius, why philosophy? Why the con- why is the consolation in philosophy and not something else? Well, I mean, cause it really, it's a, it's a theological book. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, you know, 
theology and philosophy are the same thing for Christians. Right. Right. Um, you know, and in, in our classes in our integrated humanities classes, we, it's our, our, those are one history credit, one literature credit and one credit of theology slash philosophy. Like we can't even separate them right. when we think about, about education. Uh, and so, I mean, th this is a book that, that deals with predestination. Mm -hmm. I think that's one of the reasons that, you know, a lot of reform people uh, engage with the predestination, free will, the problem of evil. Yes. Right. And so that's the point at which you start talking about, you know, consolation. Yeah. Right. Because, uh, Otherwise, you know, Job was consoled yeah. in the end. A theodicy. Right, right. exactly. Yeah. Right. That's exactly right. So love it. Uh, uh, and just to our audience, this is one of the great, you know, Mortimer Adler left this out of his great books, right? So, you Because know, he's not a Christian. <laughs> he wasn't. And he missed so many great books that, that existed. So if you're in our audience, you're listening, go read Boethius's uh, Consolation of Philosophy. Now, I have to admit that this next choice uh, for the 7th century, your choice, uh, was one I didn't recognize. You know, speaking of gaps and how with this convert, you know, we, we were exposed to gaps in our own. Yeah. Like, I wish I knew more about this or that as we were talking about this list. Well, and we were talking about that. Um, originally, this conversation came up in terms of language uh, because, you know, you're versed in Portuguese, Spanish, you know, Anglo, you know, so you, you've got a variety. And so you're, you're, literature is is far broader even than mm. mine mine's a very constrained you know in the you know anglo-western tradition but um so if you haven't heard of maximus the confessor and you know this was one that we had talked about maximus is one who argued for the two natures in one person of god mm. you know back in at the um at chalcedon uh, period and at the time, it wasn't received well, so much so that they called him a heretic, cut out his tongue, cut off his right hand, and exiled him. And then the church came back and said, oops. Uh, so both the Western and the Eastern church both have vindicated and, um, you know, in given Maximus the Confessor's position, mm. accurate, you know, orthodoxy. You know, my, my response following that grim story <laughs> is to tell you that— his name, Maximus the Confessor, makes me think of like epic science fiction, like <laughs> yeah, Gene Wolfe's uh, the the Earth of the New Sun series, for example. Like one of the main characters is a torturer slash confessor. He is the main character, ah. uh, and so like just just I, I can picture a science fiction movie featuring maximus the, the confessor <laughs> <laughs> and i'm sorry that was my reaction but it was so i'm sharing it that's great well your next choice is uh i think a shoe i mean that's just a yeah uh, beads ecclesiastical history right uh, and it's an ecclesiastical history of uh the anglo-saxon peoples right yeah yep. uh, which is great right the the gentis anglorum yeah right and uh the from the this book I'm a bit I'm a bit of a history geek and when I read theology like it really helps me to connect out actually what's happening mm -hmm. uh, or even just to have an like just to have a a cloud in my head of what might have been happening it may, may not be an, uh, a time that I'm expert in or whatever but and this book did that for me like it just talking about all the different kingdoms and all the kings right. as they convert and what their peoples do and then you know this person conspiring against that person and connecting it not only to English national identity, but to the history of the church, right? And, and, and to, you know, the Celtic and the Roman strains, it, it, it's complexity. 
Yes. And, you know, it's, it's like reading Tolkien, say, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> right, right. but, but it, it's real. Uh, well, I think that's where Tolkien gets some, you know, yeah. he was, he was immersed in, in Norse, you know, literature and, and, and philology. And, and so seeing that, you know, a lot of times we just think of the UK, but, you know, Britons and, you know, sometimes people say, well, I'm English and I'm not Brit. And, you know, and, and so they have these little, right. like, where does that come from? Well, Venerable Bede, you know, comes back as a monk who has, and another thing it shows us too, is how the church actually it was the um you know the store of this knowledge they're the ones that that was able to you know kind of communicate right. and help us understand who these different people groups were how christianity influenced them how they were able in many ways to redeem some of the you know the architecture and all yes. kinds of things so and you know unless you think of reading that kind of history is not highly relevant to you so you as a Christian and and uh, being in the church, reading that sort of church history is really enlightening when you consider the con- like contemporary circumstances. Yeah. Um, but it also helps you to to see how history works in other places. Right. right. Like you could you know reading about say conflicts amongst the Roman Church four or five centuries later. Can can really be be fed like you can read that more richly mm-hmm. because you know you you were reading a, a more distant church history. You can read about conflicts now in the United States and just make those connections. Uh, we, culturally, all of us are English to one degree or another. Yeah, right. Uh, we don't need to measure the drops of blood. We all speak English. And we all love Shakespeare, one hopes, right? right? And so then, so that that means that Bede's Latin treatise on the on the on the church on the church in in, in England uh, can impact us and how we view our own history. It, it it's really good. Well, there's a lot more we could say there, um, but we're going to move on, and the next is going to be Beowulf. Mm. Yeah. So this is you know the earliest you know extant. Anglo-Saxon text that we have, right? You know the Danes, and and so this is a, a wonderful heroic story that's been in some ways baptized, right? It's been Christianized in, in terms of, of of our our heroic character. Yeah, I mean, and Beowulf, it's like the, the story itself is so profoundly Christian, but you know, moving outside of Beowulf into un- other Anglo-Saxon works, like I have a, a book I lent out that I wanted to grab for this podcast, but uh, I have to get Aaron to give me that book back. <laughs> Aaron, if you're listening, please bring that book back. Uh, that's it's a it's a collection of uh, Anglo-Saxon poems about the apostles. Oh wow! You know, and it's absolutely mind blowing. And some of them are really quite biblical or traditional, and some of them are like, "There's no way that guy was such a superhero." You know, like it <laughs> reads like geography or something. Exactly. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. You know, and you know, spears and yeah. all, all all that jazz. So real quick, give us the rundown on the Beowulf story for our readers who have not, just the quick version. Okay, yeah. Uh, so this great lord among men, uh, Hrothgar, right. is uh, is faced with, uh, with a monster problem, mm-hmm. right? And so a great warrior reluctantly comes to, to help him out. They always come reluctantly. Yeah. <laughs> well, in this case, because his honor had been besmirched, yes, you know, right. uh, but yeah, ultimately it moves through that hero fighting that monster uh, triumphing, but then having to go into the depths yeah. to fight a greater monster, uh, figuratively Maul. die yep. exactly and come back up and tell everyone they've been saved. Yes. And then there's like, a, there's a, there's a, the, the end of, of, of Beowulf, almost seems like an afterthought if yeah. you're not 
Christianly tuned in. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this is what, that's when, you know, he's led this great life. He is a hero. He is the savior of the people. And then a dragon comes and he must die facing the dragon. And, and the, he's warned not to, he's warned not to, to go face the dragon, but he's insistent. He has to do it. Get thee behind me, Satan. Yes. Right. right. Yeah. This is, this is what I'm called to. So yeah. Well, well yeah. So, and then you know, as we were talking about Beowulf and this is a time in English literature where there's a lot of, we're not sure when this was written. So I picked uh, for my 10th century, which really it could reflect anything before the 10th century. Mm-hmm. This is the last hurrah uh, pick before we get to Norman England. Okay. Right. Uh, before we get to that, that, that mix of Anglo-Saxon and Norman culture that Tolkien kind of regretted a little bit. <laughs> so I have a riddle, an Anglo-Saxon riddle for you. Um, Scott hasn't read this, so we're going we're gonna to just put him on the spot. All right. Like when he asked me how many <laughs> how many parts Gaul was divided My into. My turn. Always be nice if you're going to do it the first time. <laughs> All right, here's the riddle. Okay. And everyone can follow along and see if they can answer it. A moth ate words. To me, that seemed a strange fate when I heard about that wonder, that the worm swallowed up a certain man's sayings, a thief in the darkness, his glorious speech and its strong foundation. The stealing guest was not a bit the wiser for swallowing those words. He ate a book? No, no. So what is it? Oh, what is it? Yes. I'll read it again. Okay. Okay. Here we go. So what is this thing? Okay. A moth ate words. To me, that seemed a strange fate when I heard about that wonder that the worm swallowed up a certain man's sayings, a thief in the darkness, his glorious speech and its strong foundation. The stealing guest was not a bit the wiser for swallowing those words. Mm. A fool? Dude, good guess. Was it? No, it's not. No, it. okay. It's actually a lot more literal than that. Okay. A bookworm. A bookworm. Okay. Well, that's <laughs> what I. Actual an, an, an actual. Oh, an actual. Well, that's what I say in the very beginning. Did he eat a book? But yeah. I see what you're saying. So was it a? It was a. Well, yeah. this is the joy of, yeah. of reading old literature. I love it because bookworms for us. That's just a figure of speech now that describes right. a person because we don't really. I mean, I owned a bookstore. I worried about silverfish. Okay. I'll admit yeah. that. Yeah. But like, but we don't think the way the monks in those monasteries did. Like they were worried about bookworms, <laughs> bookworms actual <are> bookworms. <laughs> <laughs> That's fabulous. All right. So now we're going to move past 1066, right? Um, and where are we at? Oh, uh, yep. Okay. So next is Anselm, mm. you know, and, and I don't know if, you know, proslogian or monologian, which, which one we would pick. But I will say this, that Anselm's great ontological question is still I think it's still valid today, and and I think a lot of people are not convinced by it. But if that which there is nothing greater than uh, can exist in thought, the only way that it could actually be greater is if it existed in reality. Therefore, God must exist, mm. right? That's Anselm's ontological argument. So you guys can wrestle with that. And our high school students do, right? When they, uh, in our old Western culture classes, we read uh, monologian and uh, proslogian both um, from Anselm, and we wrestle with this ontological argument about mm. God. So Good stuff. All right, so uh, next in the 12th century. This I'm one's gonna... cool. Sorry. <laughs> this one's cool because I was just learning about this today. Yeah, this is this is uh, the poem of the Cid, C-I-D. Okay. It's a Spanish poem, um, the Song of the Cid. Can you read it in Charlton Heston's voice? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was showing Scott a preview for, uh, you know, Charlton Heston does played Moses, and yeah. he was in all these epic movies. But he also, uh, he also played the Sid in, in, in the movie, you guys should watch it. It's a, it's a fun classic epic movie, but it's, it's 
sort of a foundation story for modern Spain. Okay. Right. Um, and you know, so it was, it was written in the, in the 10th, 11th century, right in the middle of all of these Christian kingdoms emerging and taking Spain back a process that took many centuries. If you want to call it that, it kind of shows when you read it, you know, you see what, what how much more of a mess it was linguistically. I love it because it's uh, it's an old Spanish that almost feels like Latin or even Portuguese. Like it's just really kind of really mixed and, and weird, but it's, it's, it's cool to read because again, of this complexity of all of these humans doing human things, it's got epic characters like Jimena. I would, you know, she's a, she's a, that's a name everyone in Spain recognizes. And so you, you end up with this epic story that sort of creates the foundation for like when we, as, as English speakers, we think of stories like Robin hood Mm. or, you know, something that, you know, like, like when Shakespeare went and he wrote Romeo and Juliet and suddenly Juliet, you know, that name evokes something specific for every English speaker. Well, uh, the Cid is like that for, for Spanish. Uh, and it's, it's that epic tale with lots of swords and honor and craziness. <laughs> That's my choice. I love it. That's a fabulous choice. Uh, I couldn't help but think of the Montagues and the Capulets yeah. as we move into. No, we, we're going to stay closer. epic here with your choice. Okay. Um, so the, the epic that I chose, this was really tough. So this gets into where we start going, okay, is it Marco Polo's travels? Um, mm. I mean, this is pretty epic in itself. I mean, going to Yeah, China. this is the point where we realize there's way too many conflicts. Like we're going to have to choose what our fave is. Yeah. Yeah. So I went with like, uh, Snorri Sorlson's, you know, the, uh, the prose, uh, Edda and, mm-hmm. and poetic Edda, um, Valsung's, uh, what else is in the Ragnar Lothbrook, all these epics of the Norse really telling their stories. Right. I mean, yeah. this is where we get to use the word saga. Saga. What a great the word. Saga the Val songs. <laughs> so I, I was just sharing this story, but one of the great sagas was, uh, was it Siegfried? I think that, uh, stayed in his mother's womb till he was like in his twenties. And then, you know, he cut her open and kissed her goodbye and went off to war. Right. <laughs> well, and, and I, I love that you mentioned Siegfried because, you know, th- this is when we talk about a classical education, the connectivity mm-hmm. and the language that gets stretched across the centuries is so key, right? Like everyone talks about Augustine in every century, yeah. right? Every, you know, so when you, when you are familiar with these sagas, you not only read Tolkien better, you listen to Wagner better, right? right? Absolutely. You, you, you can have illuminating conversations about World War One poetry, about Kaiser Wilhelm's Germany, about Hitler's Germany. Uh, and you know, for you know, for good or ill, right? You can you can connect this stuff to to English sagas. Like you know, there's there's when we're talking about the classics, this is why they're classic. Not because not just because this work is has been evaluated by experts and is more awesome than other ones, <laughs> but it's because they were awesome enough to connect across the centuries and yes. inspire other awesome work. Yeah, they they connected different people groups continued to share these stories to, to continue to connect even back to, like you're saying, back to the classic world. And if, um, you know, Wagner, you you brought up Wagner, you know, the ring of the Nibelung, this is, this is the, really the framework for Lewis's or uh, Tolkien's uh, Lord of the Rings, right? right? This is the, the baseline for it. And Wagner, um, 
just on this little side yeah. rabbit trail, really is sort of the father of the modern soundtrack uh, or movie soundtrack. Yeah. You know, so he, he switched <laughs> the way we do music and, and theater. And together. he's where we get the saying, it ain't over till the fat lady till sings. Till the fat lady <laughs> sings, that's right. <laughs> All right, so for my pick next, uh, you know, talking 1300 to 1400, I had to put aside uh, Dante's Divine Comedy. I had to put aside uh, Pierce Plowman. Uh, and I went with the Canterbury Tales. Yeah, that's a good choice. And, you know, I, I honestly I didn't do it just from the enjoyment perspective. Pierce Plowman, I think I probably enjoyed more. Uh, but the Canterbury Tales is one of those works that you can constantly reference. Yeah. It constantly comes up in your life, mm-hmm. you know, because of how it goes through these different persons and their contexts. And it brings in all of this history to play into play, not just English context, but European Christian contexts, uh, then, you know, all of a sudden, like you're, it's just one of those works that it's constantly raising its head. Uh, like, uh, I mean, it's odd that this was the first one that occurred to me, but like C.S. Lewis's space trilogy, right? you know, that, that one is always popping into my head when I look at, modern stuff where I'm having conversations with people. This is one of those works. Yeah. Well, Chaucer brings in all these different characters from different walks of life, different sorts of vocations. Right. And, and really gives us a picture. And one of the things that I love about Chaucer is he's kind of a proto reformer. Right. Mm-hmm. So he's really yes. challenging a lot of the things that are going on in the church. So that's a great choice. So my next, uh, Le Mort Arthur, I, mm. I, you know, again, here's another, this is Mallory's version of, uh, again, a whole bunch of tales of this Christian kind of, you know, uh, epic sort yes. of king uh and and so we can't we can't get away from without talking about arthur and and this is one of the, you know, you can't get away without talking about arthur that's exactly right i mean not only do epics like this connect to things like uh the cid or the song of roland yeah right uh but you know it also connects to celtic history like britannic pre-roman yep. history and and sorry you know britannic roman history i should say well Arthur's but then it moves all the way into now like you know yeah. like most kids who who read Arthurian tales, they read stuff written in the 19th century, mm-hmm. modeled after Mort Arthur. Yeah. Well, I was just going to mention, I mean, most believe that he probably was a Britain king, that right. Arthur, you know, Mallory's, you know, version of Arthur probably was a, a Britain king. All right, you're up. All right. So we, we have done two Shakespeare's in a row. That's how we roll and he bridged. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going with Hamlet. All right. Uh, because uh, honestly, just because Hamlet has... Uh, the best monologues. Oh, they're <laughs> that's it. Like, like Hamlet is the most YouTubeable of the plays. But isn't it fascinating how we have the, the Shakespeare? A lot of times we overlook this, but Shakespeare sets up. We have four or three fathers and three sons, right? And and so you have, um, and and the most unlikely actually comes out on the top. Who's really noble, right? But anyway, there's there's a lot. Yeah, to I mean, we could, yeah, we we could Wonderful. do an episode on Hamlet. I, I love I love <laughs> Hamlet. Well, I I picked uh, King Lear. Um, uh-huh. So in in as as far as the play goes, King Lear is is fabulous. And again, we can talk about all the you know the dividing of the kingdom and, and yes. everything that King Lear represents. But I just want to mention um, because the sonnets. So we're we're talking about the plays, but we can't forget. Uh, you know, Shakespearean mm. sonnets. So I was before, gonna no, I, before you get into the sonnets, okay. I just want to, this is another moment of connectivity here. Good. You mentioned King Lear, you know, the kingdom is divided amongst the daughters and, you know, this, this dividing kingdom theme is, is, is pretty constant. Yep. And as we talk, think about, you know, our legacy as Christians, it becomes pretty important in the story of the Cid that happens as well. You know, and it actually like this historical record that uh, uh, Alfred, I think his name was uh, divided his kingdom among three of his sons. 
but with with King Lear, I, I recently watched a movie with my kids, one that I've been saving for when they're old enough. Was it Anthony Hopkins version? No, oh, it wasn't but actually, <laughs> but it was actually um, a Japanese movie called oh. Ron by Akira Kurosawa. It's, it, it, it is King Lear. Yeah. But with sons, cause it's, you know, Japan. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, but you know, I mean like Kurosawa was fascinated with Shakespeare. He did a Macbeth. That's amazing. Uh-huh. Throne of blood. Right. But you know, that that's even as, as we move out of the, of the Western tradition, which is what we study in a classical education. Uh, and we should study in classical education. But I mean, these are, these are influential works that just mark humanity and are, and speak universally. So, you know, this, this movie, Ron is, it's amazing. I recommend it to you. L- Louise Cowan. Now I've never watched it, but Louise Cowan, uh, who was the, uh, you know, chair at, at um, uh, university of Dallas years ago, she's dead now, but uh, she mentions it in her book, introduction to the classics. She uh, mentions that in reference to King. Introduction Lear and Shakespeare. to the classics. There you I'm go. telling you, man, it's all, all this connectivity is awesome. And that's what is delightful about an education like this. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here's the sonnet. And one of my all time favorites for a lot of reasons, as you hear, this is the 116th sonnet. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempest and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, although rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. And if this be error, and upon me proved, I've never writ, nor no man ever loved. Mm. <laughs> this is a beautiful picture. That, that's a picture of Christ-like love that, yes. that never changes, right? And I wish you guys could have seen Scott's face as he was reaching the end of the poem. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is beautiful. And, you know, we, when we're, we're now in the modern era, so we, you know, we've had to uh, put aside people like you know, like like John Donne, people like Sir Walter Raleigh. We made we both chose Shakespeare to bridge over these two centuries, and now we're moving into the 18th century. And I choose a modest proposal. It's a uh, very modest one, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, it's such a work of genius. And a modest proposal, by the way, is a wonderful work to use to combat those who sacrifice babies on the altar of modern convenience. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, cause, so, you know, th- this is, you know, we're talking about a work that proposes cannibalism mm-hmm. as a serious proposition uh, to resolve population problems in yeah. Ireland. To, right? s- to solve both the population and the lack of, you know, finances, no jobs, whatever. Right. So we can make money by, you know, growing babies and, eating yep. them selling and them. of course it's it's satirical right uh, but it's written as if it were not that's what good satire is satire is not what you find on youtube which is someone taking a, f- a famous songs tune and putting totally different lyrics to it right you know satire is making fun of the thing yeah and one of the things about swift's work there in this particular i, I like it actually better than gulliver's travels because in gulliver's travels he really gets to the place where all humanity is disgusting to him mm-hmm. um, and so his satire really in some ways you know, misses a Christian aspect of it, I think, you know, and I don't know what was going on in his mind or life there, but Swift in this one really deals with the fact that the English 
were how bad they were treating the Irish you yes. know, in, in terms of their, their situation and brings to light, you know, these things in that satirical way. And it's a beautiful work of, it's a masterpiece in, yes. in satire, but it's also a masterpiece in rhetoric. It follows the rhetorical form almost verbatim. I mean, it's, it's one that if, if you teach rhetoric or you're teaching writing to students, it's a super easy one to break apart and you, you see exactly where the narratio is, where the exordium, uh, the, you know, the confirmatio and refutatios. I mean, every single piece is in there, including a digressio. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, it's great. It's a great piece. Uh, so I guess that leaves me next. And, and again, we're back to where we have to exclude a lot of things. And I, I picked this one. Because um, we're in the 19th century. Right 19th now. century, yes. So 1818, Frankenstein was published. And the reason I picked this is because I think it really is the sort of, um, was that the apotheosis of, of that period of time. Mm. This is where the scientific revolution now is in full swing. The industrial revolution revolution is in full swing. And this idea of the romantics and the, really the second generation romantics are playing around with um, – you know, with, with morality. Right? Mm -hmm. And, and I think one of the things that, that Shelley's you know, asking this question is, can we handle this monster that we've, you know, right. created? Right. Well, I, and I love that, that you've framed it that way, because as we were making this list and you, you mentioned Frankenstein, I, I made a face yeah, because I hate Frankenstein and I hate Shelley. But when you frame it that way, you know, you have to admit that it is important for exactly those reasons yep. whether you find it savory or not right uh whether you think it comes from a good place or not that was exactly the problem that that society was facing then and it it had it is a problem that we face yeah now well it's it's really pro problematic in terms of even kind of the tabula rasa uh idea that she she takes with the creature right the yeah. idea that that you know if he had been treated better then he wouldn't have been a sinner kind of you know that right. sort of thing you can make that to all sorts of things <laughs> but i before we move on I just, i'm going to mention one there was a uh there's a movie and i don't even know who produced it um but there's a fabulous line in it, and it's called Shelley and it's about Mary Shelley and her dealings with, you know, her father, if you know anything about what her father was into kind of the yes. plurality relationships. And then she runs off with Piercy, you know, and he's a dirtbag. Yeah. And her, her dad, who was all about this, you know, Open free love ones, right yeah. yeah exactly and her uh, mother he was, was mad that that, that she, she that she picked him she didn't like him right yeah like, he, he he didn't like him so yeah. the dad did not like percy P percy was basically fulfilling his exactly the dad's, by yeah. running off with her anywho yeah. yeah and of course mom is first wave feminist like very, very first yes. you know so this is really tragic but in the movie uh when when mary shelley writes frankenstein and and when it's all fin percy jumps up and he said this is so brilliant but why don't you make him a hero? Why don't you make him, you know, in, into the, the most beautiful piece of humanity? And she said, look around us. Huh. You know, this is what humanity does. In yeah. other words, this this version of humanity that Piercy Shelley wanted to embrace. Yeah, and so a godless humanity. Yeah, it was yeah. godless. Well, I have the 20th century, so you guys can see it. We're, we're excising so much greatness. Uh, but I, I picked a, a, little, a little gem, just a small little thing. Oh. Uh, a play by T.S. Eliot, Murder in the Cathedral. I love it. <laughs> which is, uh, so, you know, the, there's a, 
Is it a man for all seasons? Is that yeah. is that Thomas Beckett? No, that's no more more. Yeah. Uh, anyway, this is a, a well known story of of, uh, of Thomas Beckett being executed uh, by an English king, Henry Henry the Second. But the play itself, you know, it, it, it is set in that time. It's a, it's about that, that that story. He he wrote it to be performed at a church festival. The parts that he edited out turned into another poem called Burnt Norton. Uh, but you know, this is well after he had converted to Christianity. Yeah. And it's an amazing, it's just one of those things that will constantly come to your mind, yep. like other works that we've talked about, uh, because it's about the conflict between church and state. Yes. And, and Eliot is, it's a great choice because he is, you know, he is the quintessential modern man, right? right. You know, he was Ezra Pound's, um, you know, protege and making it new and then converts to Christianity, you yeah. know? So we had the hollow men and we had the waste, you know, the wasteland and all these, and then, you know, all the Christian literature, the four, you know, yeah. I mean, kids. he has, he has a, a great, great work on Christian culture. Oh yeah. You know, which is absolutely amazing. He's, he's an author worth getting into. You, you either have to choose Christian culture or you get Nazism or Stalinism. I mean, that's his, yeah. that's his, you know, anyway, <laughs> we get on. All right. So I got stuck with the 21st century <laughs> and I say got stuck because, oh my goodness, um, there, there are actually, a lot of good works and i think i'm i'm choosing literature that is sort of representative of the age and mm. I, I picked cormac mccarthy yeah uh fabulous writer you know but very postmodern in terms of his you know work so you could we could pick the road which is a, a very apocalyptic kind of cannibalistic uh, uh you know dystopian novel yeah. um or uh, no country for old men which was you know the looming coming evil and how do we how do we face it in this day yes. and and so it's a you know a, a postmodern reflection of the world yeah i mean his his movies his books are ideal for the uh, nihilistic uh, movie yeah. maker yeah, <laughs> to yeah. engage with. But he's such a good writer and the reason i know that is that i only read a few pages mm -hmm. of one of his books and it broke my heart and yeah. i couldn't deal anymore so in, in the road which you know this great disaster comes and then there's yep. this whole epic story that follows that i've read about in articles because i couldn't read the book because within the first few pages like something happens no one knows what it is and the dad starts filling the bathtub with water mm, yeah and the way that's it was written you know he's filling the bathtub with water because he if if something's bad he wants there to be some water but the way it was written i couldn't get past that like it just like it was so terrible to me yeah. that he was filling the bathtub with water to be ready uh that it it uh i couldn't i couldn't face the rest of the book you wouldn't have been able to handle the end of it either then yeah it's oh, terrible terrible but but this is literature for the ages yeah yeah well we've gone long um on this one and we knew we would yes um so but but we're we're having fun doing this. And, and one of the things that we just want to bring this all back around to before we wrap up, uh, what we've, what we've brought here in this list of books is not everything there is to read. It's certainly not the canon. It's certainly, you know, subjective as, as we've talked about, but to encourage what we call right. truly a classical Christian education, to be able to read the literature, to interact with the culture, to interact with some of these writers and these great thinkers of the ages so that we can go deeper. Yeah, and, and hopefully some of these titles surprised you. And the reason I say that is um, no curriculum, no teacher's plan, no parental plan can cover cover. as if no. They, you know, There's no such thing as covering no. everything. That just can't happen. And so... Um, you know, taking the testimony of, of folks that you trust, and hopefully we number among that as, hey, this is awesome. 
this is classic. This is worth reading. This is a this could be a part of your education and formation. So hopefully some of these surprising titles could be incorporated into your family's educational life. Yeah, absolutely. We'll go read a book, guys. So long, everybody. <laughs>